The word of our Lord from the Old Testament book of Genesis. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you even touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Adam replied, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And Yahweh said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, so I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me so I ate and so the Lord God said to the serpent because you have done this you are cursed more than all cattle more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your your head and you shall bruise his heel so the woman said, and to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. In the days of your, all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. 
to know good and evil. Now let us put out, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and then live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would minister to our minds and to our hearts, that you would change us. Lord, meet with us, challenge us, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. Give us resolve for where we need to be resolved in our lives. And Lord, we pray that having met with you this morning, that we would be changed forever. We want to know you, and we want to love you. And in your Son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. G.K. Chesterton said, Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. He believed that sin, an inherited sin, sin that we enter into the world with, that it is the only Christian doctrine that is empirically verifiable. You ever pulled up foxnews.com? You ever opened the newspaper? Ever turned on the evening news? Ever seen what your neighbor's doing? We all know that there's brokenness and sin in the world. He went on to say, these certain new theologians who dispute whether or not sin, original sin particularly, is a, is a real thing. They deny human sin, which they can see in the street. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as the starting point of their argument. If it be true, and it certainly is, that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God. If someone can take joy in something so reprobate, then either there is no God, he must deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. In other words, there's something fundamentally broken in us. G.K. Chesterton goes on to say, The new theologians seem to think it is a highly rationalistic solution to simply deny the cat. There's nothing wrong with the world. Everything is as it ought to be. There's nothing wrong with humanity. There's nothing broken. Sin is a difficult topic to address because we either deny it and refuse to acknowledge that anything is wrong with us. We don't like to be meddled with. We don't like people poking around in our lives. We don't like to be judged. Only God can judge me, we say. 
or we harp on sin. We circle the wagons and pretend that the problem's not so much with us as it is with them. We talk about other people's sins. We talk about what's wrong with everyone else. Notice how we've been introduced to the issue. It is a problem. Sin is a problem. A big problem, I say. Sin is freedom, will, and love gone wrong. It is good fruit that is rotted and spoiled. It's a problem. It's an infection to our humanity. It's a parasite on something that was created good. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, you remember at the end of each day, God saw what he had made and behold, it was good. And at the end of the sixth day, after he had created all the animals and all the living creatures on the earth, and after he had created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them, God said, this is very good. But then something happened. That which was very good went bad, became spoiled. We refer to it as the fall. The fall from goodness into badness. The, go- the, the fall from righteousness into unrighteousness. The fall from the world being as it ought to suddenly the world being something that seems to be crumbling under our feet. Sin is a problem. It's it's actually not a thing. It's a condition. It's something that has gone wrong. It's not an essential part of human nature, and that's an important thing to bear in mind. Sin is not essential to what it means to be a person. You can be a person... And not sin. You can be a human person. Even a dependent human person and not sin. We see it in Adam before sin when God said, Behold, this is very good. And we see it in Jesus. Who Paul calls the man. The archetype. The one that we were made to look like. Genesis tells us we're creating the image of God. And Paul tells us Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. God who can't be seen, you see him in Jesus. This is what God looks like. Jesus told his disciples, have I been with you so long you don't realize? You want to know what the Father looks like? Look at me. Look at my life. You want to know how God loves you? Think about how I've loved you. I just washed your feet. I, the one who you rightly call your Lord and your master, your teacher. I've become your servant and washed the filth of Jerusalem from your feet. Sin is 
not an essential part of human nature. It is something that has gone wrong with human nature. To assume that sin is just a part of being human would be like assuming that having cancer is just a part of having a physical body. No, it's not. There's something that's gone wrong. And thank God there's something that can be healed. Something that, a problem that can be fixed. We often tell our kids, messes can be cleaned up. You got to own them. You got to let mom and dad know what happened. I spilled tea on the carpet. All right, we got to know this so we can deal with it and address it. But messes can be cleaned up. And what a mess sin is. It is a disease, a disorder. And what's more, it leads to disease and disorder. The scriptures use a variety of terms when speaking of sin. There is, of course, the boringly generic term sin. In the psalm we responsibly read to begin worship, Psalm 51, you see these terms. There is just that boringly generic term, sin, which simply has to do with something wrong, something which has missed the mark, something that's just off target. Then there's transgression. That sounds a little more serious, right? <laughs> like, whoa, wait a minute, transgressed what? It's more particular, transgression is. To transgress is to break covenant, to step out of bounds, to commit a foul, to betray one's oath. It's covenant breaking. Then there's what the scriptures refer to as iniquity. And that sounds just frightening. Iniquity. Which has to do with a certain deep and dark twistedness within the human condition. Something fundamentally wrong with the core. Iniquity is not so much concerned with the acts of sin as it is concerned with the condition of the heart from which the acts of sin spring forth. Where does that come from? These behaviors, these transgressions, these Sins, where does that come from? It comes from an iniquitous heart. There's something fundamentally broken in here. However, the scriptures also make room for what might be called sins of ignorance. You know, when you do something wrong, but you honestly and heartfully didn't mean to. An accidental offense. An honest mistake. You've got something in your background of which I'm not aware or of which I'm not thinking and I make some comment in jest and I mean nothing by it and it cuts you down to the heart and it hurts and it stings and you're wondering, did he mean to sound so insensitive? And I'm oblivious to it. I have no earthly idea the damage I've just done, but the damage has been done. Those are sins of ignorance. Sins for which the Old Testament provides sacrifice. 
Because atonement has to be made. There's something broken in the world. Now, when you come to me and say, Pastor, we need to talk. You said something, and you may not have meant anything by it, but it really hurt me. Then I've got one of two options, or one of two things I've got to decide to do. A couple options. Easier way of putting it. I can either say, oh my goodness, get over it. I didn't mean anything by that. And put your big boy pants on and, you know, how long have you been thinking about this? Really, you're that mad over it? Or I could say, I am so, so terribly sorry. I I did not mean to hurt you, but I know that I did, and I'm sorry. The scriptures do refer to those as sins because you've missed the mark. But you've done it unintentionally. You've done it in ignorance. Does it miss the mark of perfection? Yes, it does. Was it done in spite or rebellion? No, not at all. The mark was missed because the one shooting the arrow doesn't yet have perfect aim. He's flawed. He has what folks in a different time would have called infirmities. Limits in knowledge. We don't know everything. And not only that, even if we did know everything, we're not always consciously thinking through everything. I may know that there was something that happened in your background, but I honestly wasn't thinking of it in that moment. I didn't even put the two things together. I had no clue I said something that that was out of bounds. That one shooting the arrow, he's flawed. He has those infirmities, those limits in knowledge, limits in abilities, limits in strength and limits in bodies, things that affect how we perform, things that perfect how we interact with others and sometimes cause harm unknowingly. But then finally, there's what the Scriptures present to us as presumptive sin. Or sin with a high hand. You know what that is. It's that decision to do what you know must not and dare not be done. With either the dismissal of, oh, I can always be forgiven later. Or the defiance of, I'll do whatever I want, God. And who are you to stop me? John Wesley coined the phrase, a voluntary transgression of a known law. And he dubbed this voluntary transgression of a known law, he dubbed this act of willful, knowledgeable disobedience, sin properly so called. In other words, what we typically are talking about when we refer to sin is this. To know I must not do this and do it anyway. Or, I know I ought to do this and not do it anyway. If you're wanting to take extra notes on your handout, you can refer to those as sins of commission, things I commit that I know I shouldn't commit, overindulgence, lying, robbery, sometimes even smaller things, 
And over here, those things I know I ought to do, but I fail to do them. I don't do them. I know I should, I know I should, you know, be more disciplined, but I'm just not. I know I should read the scriptures and pray and go to church. I know I should love my neighbor. I have an opportunity to love my neighbor and I'd neglect to do it. Those sins are not sins of commission. Those are sins of omission. And notice in our um, communion liturgy, we pray to God confessing both. Lord, there are things I have done that I ought not to have done and there are things I ought to have done that I haven't done. Lord, have mercy. Let's be clear. Temptation is not sin. The Hebrews writer in the New Testament makes it very, very adamantly and boldly clear. He underlines it if he had underlining in his day. He puts it in bold italics. He writes it in all caps like he's yelling on Facebook. Jesus, our high priest, was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and for 40 days was tempted by Satan. We read of three of those temptations particularly where Satan is coming with the scriptures of the Old Testament and distorting them to tempt Jesus. And Jesus fights back and is comforted then by the angels, the gospel writers tell us. To be tempted is not to sin. Because temptation is not a sin. To be human and therefore limited is not sin. Remember, sin is not an essential part of who you are. It is not an essential part of your humanity. So to be human and to have human faculties, to need to sleep because you get tired, to need to eat because you get hungry, to lose your hair because you wore hats too many times as a kid. I don't know what it is. I did not even look in this direction. I didn't even look. At, I could have looked over in that direction, but I didn't. I, I'm, 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 a equal, I'm an equal opportunity non-involver here. Yeah. Um, this was an infirmity, David. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should have known better. I wasn't looking up at your head, though. But to be human, to have those human faculties, to have drives and appetites, to have limits, that's not sin. You know, when you get to heaven, you'll still have limitations. You don't die and become God. You don't die and suddenly know all things and be all present, all powerful. You don't die, despite what other heretics might say you don't die and then have an opportunity to create your own planet and be a god there because you've arrived and you can have celestial babies to be human and therefore limited is not sin too often oh my goodness i didn't i'm not wanting to harp this morning i already warned against harping but too often we buy into that bumper sticker theological mentality of oh next time you think you're perfect try walking on water as though that's what it means 
As though if you can't walk on water well, you're sinful. Yeah, you're a human. Don't expect anything out of him. To be susceptible to falling as Adam was. To have the ability to fall. Even prone to falling. You may fall all the time. To be susceptible to it and even prone to it, that in and of itself, that ability, now the falling itself might be sinned, you know, depending on what we mean by falling, to fall into temptation and to indulge in things you know you ought to, that act is sin, but the ability for that act is not sin itself. That's part of being made free. That's part of having liberty, having ability. It can go wrong. But just because it can go wrong, that canness is not itself sin. You're not God. You're a created being who, as Wesley said, is capable of standing, but liable, susceptible to falling. But that's how God created us. With the risk, it goes back to the image of God, with the risk, with the ability to, to love him or reject him, to obey him or deny him. So we might better understand the problem of sin, what a problem it is. Let's look at the prism of the problem from a, a few different angles under the light of Scripture. First, there is the act of sin. That's what we typically think of. Again, Wesley called this sin rightly so called. The action, the doing, the eating of the forbidden fruit. Oh, God said don't do it. I choose my other option. I'm going to do it. That act of sin is one thing. But where does that act come from? There is the act or the behavior of sin, but then there is also the attitude of sin. And we hear it in the voice of the serpent. Oh, no. You won't die. God's holding out on you. There's... Because of sin, there is that attitude within ourselves, that attitude that tends toward disobedience, that attitude that, if we're not careful, even tends toward defiance. And it is distinct from the act. There is that self-will, what you might call self-centeredness. That attitude of sin is what Paul so often referred to as the flesh. When he refers to the flesh, there are sometimes, very few times, where he's talking about physical humanity, flesh and bones. And every single time the scriptures refer to flesh as physicality, as materiality, it is always either very good or it's neither good nor bad. It's just neutral. It, it just is what it is. The scriptures never talk of our bodies as a bad thing. But most of the time when Paul refers to the flesh, he's talking about 
an attitude or a principle within us. Something that is contrary to what he calls the mind of Christ. Thinking like Jesus does. Instead, it's thinking like self does. My self-will, my wants, my desires, my protections, my rights. Self-centeredness. That attitude of, I can do what I want. And if we're not careful, even in our spiritual lives, that attitude of the flesh has the opportunity to creep in. That's what Paul's letter to the Galatians is all about. If you are justified by faith in Christ, don't think you can live the holy life on your own, that you can just muster up enough strength, that you can pick your own self up by your own bootstraps. There is no self-made man. Not in the world, and certainly not in the religious life. There are no self-made men. If, there, if you consider yourself a self-made man, Paul says you've forfeited the gospel. You've bought into a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. There is nothing good in it. There is nothing redeeming in it. There is nothing of eternal value in it. So there's the act of sin and the attitude of sin. But then there's also the nature of sin and the nurture of sin. The nature of sin. The heart of sin. Its nature. The core of what it really is. The nature of sin is self. Those that were there with us at annual meeting this weekend heard that Latin phrase, which I've used before. Cur in curvatus in say, a heart closed in on itself. Luther used that term. It's like a black hole. It just sucks the life that's around it. It's a vacuum. It always kills. Sin always breeds death. It destroys everything it touches. That heart of sin, that heart that is closed in on, on itself, that helps us to picture what we mean by the nature of sin, the sinful nature, that principle down within us that leads to the attitude and the way we think, that leads then to the actions. Jesus said it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not what you put into your body that contaminates you. It's what's already in you. It's what's in your heart down into the core of your being. That's what contaminates you. And that's what then contaminates everything it touches. The disease left untreated metastasizes. The disorder that's not destroyed spreads disorder throughout the system. And sin that is not dealt with, sin that is not addressed will kill everything that it touches and it'll touch everything eventually. And we nurture the nature of sin by repeated acts of sin and a negligent attitude towards sin. We become our own worst enemies. We've got a problem. We recognize the problem. And we just feed the problem. We nurture it. We groom it. We make it so much worse. I remember when I was fourth grade. My mom had. I was. 
I was, it is a big confession, of, I guess, about me and how much of a baby I was in fourth grade. My mom was still clipping my toenails. And um, <laughs> Bill is ashamed. He's not going to look at me the same ever again. My mom was clipping my toenails. None of my kids better be talking because they still get their toenails clipped. What happened to me, I'm not going to let it happen to them. I warned them all the time. I warned Aiden about it the other, the other day. He was chewing on his fingernails. I said, those fingernails are going to get in infected it's gonna be bad so my mom was clipping my toenails and I didn't think she had done a good job so I snuck into the bathroom afterward and I uh, got the toenail clippers myself and went down into the little call it downstairs it was literally one step down and then, you know, we, had, we had downstairs down two stairs um and uh and I I remember I, I remember the moment I'm clipping my toenails and ooh, that, that got down I got down a little farther than I expected, rounded the edge there, and um, uh, got down into the quick a little bit. I thought, okay, I'll be all right. I went and put the the toenail clippers up, and a few weeks later, I'm like, my goodness, my foot's like getting hot, and it's painful, and you know, running. I'm okay, I'm okay, unless you bump something, and what in the world is it? And come find out my toenail had ingrown into the skin, and w- had become infected, and it was <laughs> the most traumatic physical experience of my childhood. It was horrible, and it lasted for months on end, multiple doctor's visits, multiple places. The Finally ended up not being hospitalized, but going to a hospital to see some specialist who cauterized it, and it, it, it eventually was healed. But, I mean, they had to cut the thing out, Seven shots in the in the toe, still feeling it being cut out. It was it was absolutely horrible and traumatic. And I, I warned my kids, don't mess with your toenails. Your mom will clip them. <laughs> don't bite those fingernails either. <laughs> They'll do the same thing. So <laughs> we we end up we end up nurturing the thing that's wrong with us, and we let it fester, and we let it breed, and we let it become infected, and we let it hurt us, and we still do nothing about it because we're afraid of what might happen. C.S. Lewis said. That, um, that it's like a tooth that's in our mouth that's rotting and it's going to destroy us and the pain is going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. But my goodness, we don't want to see the dentist and have it ripped out. It's going to hurt. Well, yes, it's going to hurt. Redemption hurts. Salvation hurts so that it might heal. Getting that tooth out is, is necessary for the health of the body. It was um never mind. I, I, I thought I had a another image from Narnia, but I lost it. So sin has a variety of damaging effects on our lives. It brings guilt and shame. Used to scrub. Yes, that's what it was. I, I was going toward used to scrub, and then I got distracted by the horse and his boy, my favorite, and um, the lion scratching at his back so that he'll run faster. So that, you know, God will hurt you if it'll help you. Um, used to scrub it became a dragon. And spoiler alert, those who haven't read it, if you haven't read it by now, what are you waiting on? Um, in uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he becomes a dragon, and he's he's depressed, and he doesn't recognize himself, and he needs help, and lo and behold, there's this lion, 
And the lion tells him, I can heal you. I can turn you back into a boy. I can get those scales off of you. Well, wait a minute. How are you going to do that? Well, I got these big paws with these big claws on them. And I can rip those scales off. And it's going to hurt. But do you want to be a boy again? I'm mad living here. I don't even think the conversation necessarily took place all that much. But he begins to rip and to pull the scales off. And it hurts like the dickens. It's terrible. Absolutely horrible. But when God begins to get his claws down into the scales of the scales, of the sin in our lives and begins to rip them off. Yes, it, it'll hurt. It's not fun. It's not exciting. But there's healing in that. Sin brings guilt and shame. We're not who we were. We've become a different person. Still the same person. We know what we mean by that. But man, you're, you're not who you were. It, it, it brings that guilt and that shame. It breeds death and destruction. And it always brings separation and isolation. We sin when we turn inward. And yet we find that as we sin, we increasingly turn inward. It, we compound the problem. Again, we become our own worst enemies. Like a black hole, like a vacuum, we pull and we take and we collapse into ourselves. Core in curvatus and say, a heart closed in on itself. Sin robs us of our identity, our sense of self. You might say your true self. Not in some self-help type way, but who you really are, who God created you to be, how He wired you. It robs us of that. Like Gollum, Tolkien's despicable anti-hero from the Lord of the Rings. We don't even know ourselves anymore when sin has its way with us. Notice that Gollum can't even refer to himself as a person, as a self. He is simply a plurality, a collective. It came to us. It burns us. Not me, not I. Us. As the demoniac cried out, I am legion, for we are many. Sin blinds us in its darkness as we hide from the light. For the light exposes us as we truly are, broken and miserable. Pitiable. Despicable. Shameful. So we hide ourselves. We try to find some fig leaves. We try to do whatever we can to protect ourselves. To keep others from seeing. To keep others from knowing. We protect ourselves and violently defend ourselves from the thoughts of others. Especially God's thoughts. And so what then begins to happen is a series of disorders, disordered relationships, distort, uh, disordered minds, disordered hearts. The relationship that we have with God becomes disordered and then all bets are off. The, 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 the dam has been breached. It is broken. And there's nothing but devastation 
in its wake. You see it in Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? I hid myself. Did you do that one thing I told you not to do? It's, it's almost like your kid's got an ink pen and you tell him, put it down. You're going to get ink all over yourself. And then you walk into the room five minutes later and there's ink everywhere, all over like the walls, like try to get it off, and smearing it all over himself. Did you do the one thing I told you not to? Oh, of course. It's obvious. And notice what Adam's response to Yahweh is. That woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. So yeah, I ate it. That's right, I did it. It's almost like I apologize for nothing. She led to this and you led to her. All of the relationships, everything that's supposed to be working, everything for which Adam was made begins to be disordered and begins to fragment. Eve, what were you thinking? The serpent, the creature that you made, he tempted me. So yeah, I ate it. That's right. I ate it. He doesn't even ask the serpent. And so what begins to happen is all of the relationships for which man has been made. I told you two weeks ago, we are created in the image of God. And part of that image means we are created to know and to love God. To be in community, in relationship with Him. To be in community and in relationship with others. And to be in community and in relationship ultimately with all the created order. God created this world to be to be known by us, to be enjoyed by us. This was intended to be a good place, a very good place. And all throughout those relationships, we find the disorder spreading as the disease spreads. So much so that Paul says all of creation now waits groaning for the redemption of man because all of creation is broken and hurting the disordered relationships which stem from disordered behaviors, living as we ought not, doing things we ought not, behaving in ways that are contrary to God's design because our minds are disordered. We don't think right. We don't think like Jesus does naturally. Sin is not an essential part of our human nature, but it is, it is a fundamental part of our human experience. And so Paul says, you need to think like Jesus. You need to have the mind of Christ. You need to be so captivated by Him, so given to Him, so surrendered to Him, so transformed by Him that your mind, which has become disordered, can begin to be reordered. And our hearts, what the Old Testament sees as the control center of our lives, where where all of our deciding is done, where all of our feeling is done, where all of our actions come from, those hearts we find are disordered because of sin. It's a vicious cycle. The more we sin, the more we become isolated. The more we become isolated, the more we sin. 
The more we close ourselves off, the more disordered our relationships get. And the more disordered our relationships get, the more we close ourselves off. Sin mars the image of God in us. There's the doctrine of total depravity. And Calvinists believe that total depravity means that because of sin, because of our lostness, you and I are as filthy, bad, as low and rotten, as broken as broken can possibly be. We're not just a broken vase. We're a broken vase that has been stomped down to the ground and has been ground into fine sand and sand is not even fine enough. We're ground down into powder. That that's what total depravity means. But Wesley, when he talked about total depravity, which he did believe in, he spoke of it as as this. God's image in us, every bit of it, whether it's our intelligence, our freedom, our abilities, the ordering that we that we are able to have in life because of his political image where we're able to 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 be in relationships with others and we're able to organize community and kind of live without killing each other um, that all of the parts of God's image in us the total image has been affected has been contaminated has been broken That image of God in us is marred by sin because we've spiritually died. We believe the lie that sin doesn't bring death. And tragically, we found that God was absolutely spot on. The day you eat of it, you will die. You will be cut off. You will begin to enclose on yourself. And we have become depraved in our hearts because we are deprived of God's Spirit. Lord God breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living being. The prophet Ezekiel picks up on that idea as he looks out on the valley of dry bones. He says there's no breath in them. There's no spirit there's no life. Just nothing but death. Nothing but rot. Certainly nothing that looks like what that image was supposed to look like. The presence of God is lost by sin. It must be reestablished through atonement. The cost is real. Redemption is bloody work. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden after God. They lost that presence after God had made them tunics from the hides of the animals that Adam had just previously named. The skins of those named animals... The banishment from the Garden of Eden 
the cherubim that are placed at the eastern gate and that fiery sword that swung every which way to keep Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden and then partaking of the tree of life in that brokenness. Those are all reminders that for that presence of God to be reestablished, for redemption to happen, it's going to take atonement. It's going to take something very costly. It's going to take something that's very bloody work. And that's the tale of Genesis chapter 4 through 11. As humanity spirals out of control, as brother kills brother, as life gets more and more shattered and broken and the effects of sin permeate through the body of humanity, you end up reading in chapter 6 just before God commissions Noah to build an ark which is not a boat it's actually a box you've got the ark of the covenant the box that holds the stuff placed in the temple the tabernacle and you've got the ark of Noah which is a big beautiful box it's going to house all the animals right before that we read these terribly haunting words the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. If you've never been faced with the true horrors of your sin then I'm afraid you're not a candidate to be redeemed from your sin If we deny the badness of sin, if we deny that sin is is as bad as the scriptures declare it to be, then we can't know the joy of being redeemed from it. And so how does God begin to restore us? He begins to restore us by undoing the work of sin. By calling us to three things we don't much like and one thing for which we were made but which which we often avoid. He calls us to confession, to clear the air, to hear the word of pardon. He calls us to repentance, 
to change our minds so that we might change our ways. And He calls us to surrender, to lay down our weapons and to stop resisting. Those are three things we don't like. Those are three messages that are not gladly received and gladly heard messages all the time. Confession, repentance, and surrender. But those are three ways, those, those are three things to which God calls us to begin the work of undoing the effects of sin, undoing the grip that sin has on our lives. Confess, repent, surrender. And He calls us into relationships. Something for which we are made, but something for which we are something which we often avoid. He calls us into right relationships with himself, and he calls us into right relationships with others. Spouses and friends. He calls us into relationships wherein we can confess our sins so that we might pray for one another the book of James says, so that we might then be healed. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. He calls us into community. He made us in His image. He made us for that community. He made us to know His presence. And so He gets His presence down into our lives as He calls us to confess and calls us to repent and calls us to surrender ourselves and bind ourselves to Him and bind ourselves with others. You cannot enjoy the full work of redemption till you know the full weight of your brokenness. The problem of sin is why the good news is so good. Father, we pray that you would take what has been said, what has been shared, what has been thought in these moments together. And we pray that you would get the truth of your word deep down into the fabric of our being. We pray that you would call us to confess to someone in our lives what we've done. To ask for strength. To ask for help. We pray that you would call us to repentance. That you would call us to surrender. Lord, we pray that you would help us to come to you and to come to each other just as we are so that we might be healed, so that our sin might be addressed and cleansed by the good news that Christ has come to set us free from sin. In his name we pray. Amen.